This will be part two of the coverage of the Idaho murders. In the last episode, I talked about and read directly from the newly released affidavit about how this incident all went down. This episode, I've brought on defense attorney and host of the podcast, Defense Diaries, Bob Mata, to deep chat about a lot of the details surrounding this incident. It's some really good stuff. I'll just leave it at that, and let's go ahead and roll with this. So for this segment, I'm joined with Bob Mata from Defense Diaries, and we're going to discuss a little bit about this this case we have, the Idaho murders. Uh, Bob, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hey, thanks, Brandon, man. I'm uh, really excited to be doing it. Like, this has been a long time coming um, in terms of you and I doing something like this. We've been talking about it for a long time. Um, I think this is a perfect case for us to kind of dip our toes into the water together. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I am Bob Mata. I am the host of a little podcast called Defense Diaries. We are a serialized uh, podcast. We are currently in the second season. The first season was about uh, John Wayne Gacy. Second season is about a guy named uh, Dr. Anthony Garcia, who I represented a few years back. And it was a pretty, pretty insane case. So we're, we're two seasons in. Uh, we also have a side pod that we call the docket where we cover current cases and breaking news type cases. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to be here, man. I'm excited to do this with you. Yeah, that's really good. And I'll tell you, I've listened to your episode on your little side project. I guess it is the docket on this case. And, you know, just the info, it's a lot of the same stuff I've kind of gone over here because of the affidavit. Right. It's really, really good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. I, it, like kind of my move, um, because I am an attorney, you know, I, I'm, uh, I always say I'm a recovering criminal defense attorney turned podcaster. Uh, I, I, try, <laughs> I try to bring that to the table, um, in terms of kind of my knowledge base, uh, you know, much like you have the ability to be able to look from the, uh, inside looking out as being a dispatcher for 911. You've got like that inside dope that people that don't do that don't have, you know what I mean? So it's like we both bring something to the table that, People, if they're not doing what we've done or what you're doing um, professionally, they're just not going to be able to have the ability to be able to look and analyze things the way that we can. So as far as like the law angle, um, I, I try to bring that to the table, but I try not to be, you know, like uh, overly erudite and boring. And, you know, I, I try to make it interesting. I try to make it so that lay people that are listening that love true crime content um, and may not necessarily understand everything that they're hearing or have questions because a lot of the content that they get has gaping holes. Um, especially when we start getting to the trial phases of these cases, you know, that's kind of like when you look at like any kind of content, like especially like discovery ID stuff and all that stuff, you know, they always kind of just glaze over the trial. It's like they cram it in in like the last five minutes and Frankly, that's the most interesting part, you know, um, that that's like kind of where the culmination of the case really, really happens, um, you know, and that's where you get your end result. But because of the technical side of like getting lay people to understand exactly what goes on in a trial, 
I think that that's why they decide to always kind of just, you know, throw it in there as a little bit of an afterthought. So I'm trying to change that game. I definitely do it in my pod. Um, and my, my listeners are pretty receptive to it. Um, people are, pardon me, everybody, I, I do have a cold, so I'm a little bit more nasal than I already am. And I'm already a pretty nasal <laughs> guy, but, uh, so you guys will have to suffer through, but, uh, Brandon said he'll be able to magically get rid of all that shit. So we'll see if that actually works. Um, yeah, there's a pill in my recording software that takes care of all that. <laughs> I love that. That's beautiful. So yeah, man, that, that's kind of like what we try to do, but you know, both of us have that kind of thing going on where we're bringing something to the table that I, I don't think that there's a lot of people in the industry, especially in true crime are able to do. So, um, that's why I love your show so much. And speaking of which. Why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and about your amazing podcast, Music City 911? Yeah, I'm uh, Brandon Hall, and I've been a 911 dispatcher in Nashville for the past 22 years, and it's actually closing in on 23 now in the next couple months. Um, just from that, I've dealt with just about anything you can think of on 911. You know, people's worst days are sometimes my best days at work. It's kind of sucks that way, but I mean, that's the way it is. The basis of the show, I just kind of wanted to start out by highlighting dispatchers and what we do, and it's kind of rolled into what it's doing now, where I'm doing a, a bit of a combination of education and entertainment, uh, and it works very well. A lot of people like it. Yeah, you know, I've enjoyed doing it, and I want to keep on doing it, too. Uh, I originally started out with a coworker of mine. I worked with him for about 20 years before he retired, and he was a dispatcher for 40 years. And, you know, once he, we started doing the podcast and the amount of time involved, he was already retired. He just wanted to remain retired. I know that's an extra few hours. And actually I say a few hours, that's just on the recording end of it. That can turn into a lot of time. And that's, you know, he just wanted to remain retired. So from there, I just took it over myself and molded it into what it is today. And I've enjoyed doing it. It's amazing, dude. And, and we have very similar formats. You know, both of us um, are, are, you know, in a profession that I'd say probably a majority of true crime listeners are not in. Uh, you know, I'm, an, I'm a lawyer and, and you're a dispatcher. And we just, you know, we get those experiences that um, you can only get if you're doing doing the damn thing. You know, it's like we're, we're boots in the ground thing. And, you know, it was the same concept with me. You know, I'm going to go and try to educate, but you know, trying to make it entertaining at the same time, you know? So, um, I do have to say that I think that we're both pretty, pretty good at it. <laughs> so I, I, I'm a big fan of your show, man. I, I really love it. Um, there was one thing I was going to ask you, uh, do you, do you have to do FOIA requests to get your, your tapes in terms of getting the recordings or do you just have access because you're a dispatcher? Well, if I'm, uh, asking for directly from an agency, yeah, I have to go through just like anybody else because, I'm doing it for the show, not for, for me. So for the show, I'm considered just like you considered media. So right. you have to go through and do one of their media releases and just kind of like normal, anybody else would have to do. But most of the time, the audio that I pick up for as far as like, I'll do a little combination of 911 calls and sometimes like police body worn camera, things like that. I'll look for stuff that's already released and kind of go from there. It's, it makes the, the episode a lot easier and because oh, God, of the amount yeah. of 911 calls that are out there it's in america 240 million people calling well actually 240 million 911 calls are placed every year so oh my god there's always stuff out there oh my god yeah that's like the needle in the haystack thing you got going on there man you know especially if you know obviously with high profile cases 
those are easy to, you know, figure out, you know, but then the challenge becomes getting them to release it. Sometimes they don't. Like with Garcia, I had the 911 tapes originally, but there were two sets of murders. The first set of murders happened back in 2008, and they had given us the discovery on audio tape as opposed to on CD or electronically. And dude, like, like when I went to go play the tape, it, it was crapped out. So I actually did a FOIA under somebody else's name because I knew if they knew it was me requesting it, they never would send it to me because they hated us out there like massively. So um, I did it under Darren's name and they still said no. Like they, they refused to give the 911 on the Garcia on the first uh, set of murders from 2008 over to us. So it can be challenging to get those sometimes. So yeah, man, that's, that's, uh, that's incredible. And I, and I love the, the way that you intertwine it. You know, it's like, it's such a, um, like an ingenious way to do it. So I, I'm a huge fan of your show and I'm excited to do this with you, man. So yeah, same thing with your show. Yeah. Actually, since we're kind of on that subject, that was one of the things I was, uh, going to bring up. One of the big things that people have been talking about is the 911 call that was placed on this one, which we don't have. It has not been released yet. Right. Uh, it's been, you know, I, I've been wanting it to be released, but, uh, I, I think just like anything else with this, they're going to kind of hold on to it till, uh, probably trial, I would imagine, just not really put it out there. Initially, I did see some reports saying they were flirting with maybe releasing it, but they didn't. Um, but all we know really from the call, as we've stated from the affidavit, a uh, couple other resources, that the the caller, one of the roommates, she called in saying that there was someone unconscious and not waking up and that there were, while on the phone, there were several other people that talked to the dispatcher. I'll tell you straight up that with something like this, with younger adults, these are, I'm not exactly sure of the, the survivors, like their, their ages, I would imagine somewhere between 18 and 21, but younger adults like that, they haven't had this kind of experience before. Granted, a lot of people haven't had exactly this type, but they haven't been faced with an emergency before. So they don't exactly know what to do. So if they have their friends, which this and all likelihood was kind of a party house that they lived in. They were probably had a lot of people coming and going, a lot of drinking there. People would maybe have too much to drink sometime and just have alcohol poisoning or something like that. Wouldn't wake up instead of calling maybe their parents or an ambulance or something like that. Initially, they would call friends over to see what they could do. Right. So in this case, I, I think that that may have been what happened, but there's still a lot of speculation about that part. And, Kind of leading into what I was going to ask you, the delay from the time that the murders happened and supposedly this roommate saw the, the killer walk past till right. the time the 911 call was actually placed was nearly eight hours. It was yep. 1158 when they placed the call. That's a big gap. And there That's can be a, a huge gap. Yeah, there can be a number of reasons. Uh, again, speculation on authorities and then other news outlets that it can be anywhere from some sort of a trauma response to alcohol like this this person was likely drinking too and could have just passed out afterwards and and really maybe not have known what happened in the first place because there was not as far as we know a lot there wasn't any type of commotion there wasn't any type of yelling or screaming it just kind of happened and there were only talks of very light talking so we're at the point now in this case and we at defense diaries have been very quiet about this case. Like I was not 
going to engage in any of the speculation and all the bullshit that was going on, you know, for the past, what, 50 days, 47 days it was that investigation took. And like the amount of, of misinformation that was out there on the internet was just like stunning, man. It's like on the episode that we did on the docket, I, I kind of go on like a, like a, I'd say about an eight minute rant, you know, cautioning people that do what we do in our business, but just people in general, you know, it's like what was going on with the speculation and, you know, people just, you know, social media is powerful, you know, I mean, when, when they use terms like influencer, yeah. it tells you all you need to know in terms of how it affects people when they're watching and consuming this stuff. And just the, the way that they were just accusing people of, of being the murderers based on nothing was, was like, like shocking to me. You know, it was, I, I just couldn't believe that it was going on. It was like incredibly upsetting to me. And, you know, to the extent where I felt like I had to say something that was going to be out there. And I'm pushing that episode really hard because it's an important message. That first 10 minutes, you know, cause I go through and I read the entire, um, PC affidavit and it's, it's, a, you know, like from beginning to end in the episode, I obviously, I tried to do it in, in my fashion where I make it interesting and it's not like a real dry read, I try to kind of turn it into a story, which I think I accomplished, but man, yeah, like talking about the point that you were hitting initially with the 911 call, it leads me right into the, the, you know, kind of that PC affidavit. So when we got that and I start reading the statements of DM, who was one of the surviving roommates, and she's the one who saw, you know, the killer when he was walking out. And, you know, th there's just so much with that when you think about it, because th that was all I could do was try to fill that eight hour gap. Like what, what happened? Because we knew that, that people were over there. Like you said, there was, I think a couple of the Sig Kai dudes came over at like around nine, nine fifteen in the morning. Yeah. Okay. So there's still two hours of them contaminating the crime scene, you know, and you and I both know, um, you know, that, that became my only concern, you know, is that we have a, a crime scene where there's DNA potentially all over the place. And we have these kids that are running rampant out there. The part that doesn't make any sense to me is that we've got, we know that, that DM was on the second floor. Like we had always been told that her bedroom was on the first floor. So I was a little bit shocked when I was reading through the affidavit and it said that she was on the second floor, that that's where her bedroom was. So I don't know if that was intentionally let out there or if that, again, was just speculation from people saying that she was on the first floor, you know, because everyone was like, well, why didn't they get killed? You know, and then I think that people just started assuming that they were on a different floor. I've had cases like I, I've handled cases where it was murders with knives. They're messy. They're bloody. There is a lot of blood. I don't know how anybody in that house that survived and anybody that may have come over after the fact could have potentially looked at somebody and thought that they were unconscious with the amount of blood that would have been in and around the body. Like it, it's like, it's implausible to me. I just like it. None of that makes sense still to this day, especially with, uh, and that's one that kind of leads into another kind of point that I was going to say here. Um, and I'll get to that here in just a second. But as far as I know, from reading the affidavit, it sounds like each of the pair of victims, uh, the, the two women that were killed and then the, the woman and her boyfriend, and I'm still, I'm horrible with the names right now. So, uh, so, yeah, forgive so me for that. Zana, Zana and Ethan are on the second floor. So they were, yeah. they were the two that were on the second floor where DM was. Yeah. And then the other two were found in a, a bed together. So they were all 
it, it wasn't like they were scattered out individually in different rooms. Exactly. They were all together. So, but that kind of leads into again uh, the question of the possibility of a stabbing versus cutting, as to one of the reasons there wasn't any type of commotions or screams with something like this. Granted, it, it, just like you said, there uh, was talk about the victims having multiple stab wounds. I almost think that they've, and granted, again, speculation, and I hate to be a part of that, but just it, it seems logical that, that this person, this suspect in this, he probably sliced their throats and then went to work on them after that. That way they couldn't scream. They couldn't make a lot of noise. I, I would imagine that to be the case, but again, can't really say. Right. I'm assuming that the person that, that they saw first is Xana, okay? Because they, they find her, her body was on the floor. Okay, so that would have been the person that I imagine because we know that the two girls, um, and we're talking about Kaylee and Maddie, who were up on the third floor, were in the bed in a single bed together. Yeah, like you said. And then what we have is Zana in the affidavit said that they found her f- like lying on the floor. So because he says the what he says in the the affidavit exactly is just before the room, there's a bathroom door on the south wall of the hallway. As I approached the room, I could see a body later identified as Kernodal's, laying on the floor. Okay, so we know that that's who the unconscious person is. Okay, yeah. because Ethan, it sounds like they don't specify in here um, at all, but he says also in the room, later identified was Ethan Chapin. All right, so I'm assuming he's in the bed. So Xana's the one on the floor. It, like, it, like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, like this, this gap, like, I am like out of my mind trying to figure out what this DM statements to the, to the authorities were and like how they add up. Cause they just don't, you know, and, and like the thing with me and you and I had talked off air, um, you know, both of us agreed. I think as far as the girls upstairs, the affidavit does say that they were stabbed multiple times. Um, and they determined the only thing that they put at all from the county medical examiner with respect to any of them was that um, Ethan was cause his his cause of death was sharp force injuries. Okay, so that could be stabbing, that could be slashing. You know what I'm saying, or, or cutting. You know, because like b- both you and I agree that there was not much of a struggle that went on. It sounds like a majority of the people that were killed were sleeping when they were killed. Um, you know, or if it's a stabbing. I'm sure the victims would have woken up probably initially when they get stabbed, but there wasn't much of a struggle that happened after that, you know, cause he's, he's clearly in control of the situation. And, you know, in terms of defensive wounds until they release the autopsies, we're not going to know, we're not going to know what kind of a fight there was. But one thing that we do know, and again, it all, it all goes back to DM statements and the things that she said she's, she heard and, you know, she didn't hear anything that would be indicative of people getting murdered. You know, no, no bodies dropping to the floor, you know, because what's interesting is that they have that um, surveillance camera that was about 50 feet from the outside of the building that hears the whimper and the thud of the body, you know, so that's from 50 feet outside of the building. We're talking about DM who in her statements is saying, look, I heard what I thought was Kaylee playing with her dog Murphy up on the third floor that woke me up. And then I hear her say, there's someone in here. And then I hear Xana crying. And then I hear a male voice say, it's okay. I'm going to help you. 
You know what I mean? So like this, this woman's like hearing everything, you know? So that tells us that, you know, for, and, and what is missing in the affidavit is any kind of indication that she heard that there were murders going on, Yeah, you know? So like where it's brought my mind is, is there some kind of strange little cover up going on either from DM's perspective as to why there's this eight hour gap before 911 is called? Or is it law enforcement? You know, because like what you have to worry about is the integrity of the crime scene, man. You know, I mean, it's so, so crucial, you know, and it's one of those things where we're not going to find out how, how much damage was done to that crime scene, uh, frankly, until we get to trial. That gag order is shutting it all down. We are not going to be getting information until it goes to trial. I guarantee you. Yeah, and I'm hoping that happens sooner than later. But as you know, I mean, that's that can be could be a year or more. It's going to be two years, dude. You think no, so? Okay. Oh yeah, that's like it's just the way that the process works, you know, because it, it's essentially the way that it goes down is you have the prosecutors are going to be getting all of the information, all the discovery that they're going to get from law enforcement, which is from multiple agencies. Okay, so you have one requesting agency, which is Moscow. Okay, so they, they reached out to in, uh, the Idaho State Police. They reached out to the feds. They reached out to Pullman. You know, like, so you have Spokane, Washington. You have a lot of agencies involved with this. And basically what happens is that all of the information gets filtered into the requesting agency. So what happens when the FBI has a report, they're sending it to Moscow. And then Moscow puts it together in a package. And then they send it to the state. So then you got Idaho State Police. Same, same deal, man. Like all their, the, the parts of the investigation that they were conducting, they've got to wait till they get the reports. And, and you know how reports are. I always talk about it on my pod. They're not happening contemporaneous, uh, contemporaneous to the investigation. It's like they're using, they take notes on a little pad, you know, like when they're out investigating or if they're talking to witnesses, you know, they're writing things down on a little pad and then they come back to the office at some point. Some, you know, sometimes weeks later, sometimes months later, and they prepare the reports and the reports are ultimately what end up going to the attorneys. So, you know, because whenever I get discovery on a case, it's always a police report. Like I'm not getting handwritten notes. I have to request those. And almost inevitably, they tell me that they've destroyed them. You know, they don't want us seeing that. They only want us seeing that the reports are repaired or that were prepared. So I don't know, man. Um, yeah, it's going to take a while. You know, that, that whole process just to get in discovery is going to take six, seven, eight months. And remember, the investigation into uh, the defendant has just started. Oh, <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a <laughs> like ton, of, ton of, uh, you know, FBI uh, analysis. I mean, uh, Behavioral, everything, everything, yeah, every, but everything like now, now that they've arrested him and they have, they have him incarcerated, you know, they obviously were able to get the search warrants of his apartment, of the family house. They got the vehicle like that. All of that is just starting. You know what I'm saying? They believe me, they are dragging every, so, you know, so the way it goes down is they were able to triangulate him in, in all these various locations. They were on to him by the time that he's driving back from Washington to Pennsylvania with his father. They go way out of the way. Like they're in Loma, Colorado, which if you Google it, which I did, it's way out of the way. Okay. Oh, yeah. If you're driving, if you're driving from Idaho to Pennsylvania, you're heading way further south than you need to, to go to Colorado. Why did he go there? 
you know, why, why is he in like Clark, like I think it was Clarkston, Idaho or Clarksville, one of the two. And you know, that, that happens right after the murders. So immediately you start thinking, okay, that's where he went to go dispose of the, the, the murder weapon, yeah. you know, cause you got this, you got two major rivers up there. You got the snake river and there's another one. And you know, that's where I'm thinking he went and tossed, you know, so they're going to be dragging those rivers. They're going to go to the, there's three major bridges up there where he may have tossed it off any kind of shoreline areas, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be desperately trying to find the murder weapon, even, even though they have the sheath, they're still going to want to find the murder weapon. Yeah. They'll, they'll try to find that. And I I think they've got enough to nail them down even without that, but having that would be that much better. It's, you always want the murder weapon. Yeah. If, if, if you can get it, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just, but I agree. It's like when you look at the affidavits and like kind of the first thing that I did, because we had done an episode on the Delphi case when Richard Allen got arrested and you look at that affidavit and if you put it side to side, um, you know, with this affidavit, you know, cause I was extremely concerned about the strength of that case in the Richard Allen case for the Delphi murders. When I read that, I'm like, wow, they, this is thin. Like they do not have much. They basically have mere presence and the guy admitted that he was there. They just had screwed up and like buried the report for yeah. five years. You know, like they, they knew it. Like he went to them. They, 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 you know, they didn't go to him eventually. Like he went to them the day that it happened because they had somebody stationed at a, uh, like a grocery store out front to take statements of anybody that might have been like in or around the bridge area that day. So like he went and made a statement. So I, I was over there, you know, this is what I was wearing, this is what I was doing, you know? So, and then you get an affidavit like this and this affidavit reminds me of the Garcia affidavit where they lay out the entire case, you know, like people kept saying, and it was very frustrating for me as a criminal defense attorney to try to explain to people, Mike, look, they don't hold shit back. Like if they have really strong evidence from the, from the get, they're putting it in the affidavit. Because they're, they're, you know, they're laying out their case for a judge on an arrest warrant, you know? So like, while it's a a much lower burden in terms of probable cause for arrest than it is for a conviction where you need beyond a reasonable doubt, they still want to be able to walk in front of a judge with a pretty much ironclad case where the judge can say, got some strong evidence here. Here's your arrest warrant. Go get them. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, like, they're not going to be holding back. You know, because everyone with the Richard Allen thing is like, oh, they have more evidence. They're just holding it back. I'm like, no, they don't. I'm like, like if he's getting convicted, it's not going to be on the strength of what they have in that affidavit. It's going to be what they get in the investigation post arrest, which is exactly what I'm saying. Like, this is going to take forever to get to trial because the investigation is going to be going. Now, I read something today that even Washington State, in terms of the agencies out there that are doing their searches. And again, what they're doing out there is they're looking for the weapon for sure. They're searching his house. They've, they've done all the things that they need to do in terms of processing that scene. Yeah, probably looking through the university campus itself. Like, all of it. Yeah, all of it. All of it, dude. Like all, you know, so, and they said it, they anticipate that their portion of the investigation will take two months. So you've got three different states at least involved. You know, you've got Washington, you've got Pennsylvania, and then of course you've got Idaho. So, you know, those are three different states. And then Colorado's going to be in the mix because he went there. You know what I'm saying? There's just, there, there's and a actually, lot If you there. really think about it too, it can be even any state between Washington and Pennsylvania, because at any point while traveling back with his dad, he goes to the restroom, he drops that knife in a, 
in a trash can or at a rest area or something. It could be easy. That's that's exactly what I said. Like somebody was like, well, you know, we're like when he was, you know, what was he doing traveling, you know, to these different towns in Idaho, like after the murders, I'm like, well, disposing of the weapon, obviously. And that was what I said. They were like, well, you know, where's he going to do that? And like restaurants or cat. And I'm like, no, he's going to go to a rest stop. <laughs> like, so yeah. like he's completely abandoned rest stop at five in the morning and he's going to drop it in a garbage can at a rest stop, you know, but where nobody sees him do it. No one's seen him do it, you know, but law enforcement is smart. You know, I mean, they, they know all the tricks. I mean, they, they're like we're, we're not going to, you know, we're not telling them anything that they don't know in terms of where to search for, you know, things like that. So like, they're going to be dragging the rivers. They're going to be checking all the rest stops, you know, and they're, they're going to actively search for, you know, <laughs> that, you know, like the fact that he went back there at nine twelve in the morning, like drove back there. It's like, you and I were talking about this off air too. It's like, he had to have been going to get that sheath, man. Like that. Yeah, the, like, absolutely. Sheath, had like, to. Oh my God. He like, he realized that he left the sheath. Like he's like, Oh my God, the sheath, you know, and he's probably hoping he's like, well, I, I pretty much killed everybody in there and maybe that other girl's still sleeping. You know what I'm saying? And like, so I'm going to see what's going on over there. And if possible, I'm going to sneak back in and grab that thing. Like there, there's no doubt in my mind that that's why he went back there. Um, you know, so I, I, Two years is my guess, dude, on trial. That's how long it's going to take for this thing to get to trial. Because once discovery is all in, that's when all the pretrial motion work starts. And it's just a lengthy process. There's just a lot there. And, you know, the, the motions are drafted. And then the, the responses are drafted. And then the thing is scheduled for hearings. And the hearings are always a couple of months apart, sometimes three months apart. And, you know, like, to be honest with you, if this affidavit was not so strong, uh, if I was his defense attorney, I would be doing a speedy trial demand because that is the only way. So they can't piece everything together like they exactly, want to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The more time they give the police, the more that, I mean, that's what they did in Garcia. It's like, I, I always regret not having made a speedy trial demand, you know, because they, they did so much investigation in the two and a half, three years that it took for that thing to get to trial. I'd say like 80% of their, their evidence came after he was arrested in, in the Garcia case. It was crazy. You know, it was, it was insane. So like, it, like if I'm thinking of a strategy, if I'm the defense, I'm thinking very, very hard about making speedy trial demand, but they've got that big DNA issue. And, you know, I mean, it's like they've got the mere presence in the area, which is, huge circumstantial evidence it's very damning and it you know because we know it's like the, the what they did so beautifully in that affidavit was put the phone in the car you know so they first established that it's his car and they did that by saying you know well we saw him get out at the you know the grocery store we saw him park and then we saw him in the grocery store saw the the white elantra park in the parking lot saw him walk into the grocery store and then saw him shop in the grocery store leave the grocery store and go back to the white car so they established it's his car aside from just the registration stuff, so that he can't say that he wasn't driving his car that day. That's what they worry about, right? Oh, well, I, I loaned my car to somebody or somebody stole my car, you know, whatever, whatever kind Any of Any type of small defense to. that he tries to come up with. with it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of stuff, they, they really have it down ironclad. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, uh, it's a tough case. So what else you got? Like, I, I could talk about this shit for hours, so you oh, got to cut me off. You know, seriously, I'm, I'm the same way. I was going to say, like, since we were kind of on the whole evidence piece of it, uh, circling back around how we actually got to the point of 
I guess, focusing on this one person, how they piece together uh, with video evidence. They have, you know, on the affidavit talking about how the how that actual neighborhood they uh, where this happened at. It's a small neighborhood. It's not heavily trafficked. It's, you know, very few cars come out, especially in or, in or out of the neighborhood, especially that time in the morning. So they got, uh, I believe they said from a neighbor's house, one of the videos there, and they started what they called their video canvassing. And they narrowed it down to around what time the murders were. And then they see this white Hyundai Elantra leaving the area and they start narrowing down all the possibilities. They employed uh, the FBI, one of their analysts that had you know, decades of, of looking at this stuff trying to search to see what kind it was. They narrowed it down to a very specific model, very specific generation of a Hyundai Elantra. So they could go back down to how many of those there are, you know, sold here in America, how many are there in the area. And then they had different agencies in that area, including universities looking at their registered vehicles they had there and kind of narrowed it down to this one guy because as they said in the affidavit and a few other different times at their news conferences, this car had no front facing license plate, which is exactly. a huge deal. And yep. both Washington and Idaho, which that's right there on the border between the two, they both require the front facing license plate. And this one didn't. Yep. So that's another way they narrowed it down. And yep. then from there, they kind of started piecing together towards the suspect himself. And I know you say defendant, I'm more on the police end of it, so I I generally say suspect. That's you know kind of where I've got it on there. That's a little little deviation. Either way, as long as we're not saying his name, man, like that, I'm I'm big on that because when I saw the photograph of this guy, um, it's all in the eyes. The eyes are the window of the soul, and just his his reactions, the the smug look this guy had, you know. And I've dealt with people that are sociopaths, like intimately. You know what I mean? Just in terms of my business um, and what I've done for the last 20 years. And that guy's off. You know, you can see it and you can see that he's relishing this. And um, I am not going to give that guy what he wants. You no, know, like, no, he, I, like, that was one like, of the things so, with mine, too. Like, I've, I've, uh, on, you know, earlier on in this episode, I've played a couple of the, the body worn camera things ahead from, a different agency within the course of about five miles, they said that he got pulled over twice for tailgating. Mm-hmm. And in both of those, you see his face and it's no more than maybe there might be a little bit of sheer nervousness that anyone would see uh, or experience when they are actually getting pulled over by a police officer. But this guy just killed four people, yep. you know, and he's trying to run away from it. Essentially uh, him and his dad are in the same car. But even with that, only that little bit of emotion is what you really see there. It's not like he's freaking out or just playing it off. He did just everything that a normal person would do. Yeah. I mean, he looked, he looked cool as a cucumber, you know, he's like, he's like sitting there and like, I'm assuming you're talking about the Indiana, you know, the Indiana state police where he got pulled over when he was in Indiana twice. Yeah. Like, and and I heard after the fact that, that the feds had directed them to pull him over one of the times because they wanted to, get a look at his hands to see if he had injuries on his hands. Um, and so that was December 15th, almost a month after, um, you know, but still, uh, I agree, man. Like just when I, when I was watching those videos, it's like, he's sitting there watching his father pretty, 
pretty closely listening to what his father's telling the cop as his father's talking about whatever a mass shooting that had taken place. Yeah. Uh, I guess that day. And it, you know, so, and like, he's just kind of carefully monitoring what his dad is saying. And, you know, like really the only time that he speaks is when, you know, the, the officer asks, you know, uh, Oh, do you, do you, you know, you do work at the university? And he's like, Oh yeah, I, I actually do. He's, he, he looked cool, like cool as a cucumber, man. Cool. Yeah, and his <laughs> like, dad helped like, out with that too. I, I believe he said at one point he's going for his PhD, and exactly just you know rolled with it. And it, I mean, I granted, I, I don't think, but uh, again, kind of speculation. I don't necessarily think that the dad had any knowledge of this, but if he did, man, he's a good actor too. You know, he's oh man, tell like, me right about into it. it. Tell me about it. You know, because like I was reading some posts online and. You know, people were asking if they thought that it was strange that dad flew out to drive the car back with them. And I don't, I don't necessarily think so. Um, I mean, no, you want to, well, you going across country 3,000 probably miles or so. You want to, it's a companion. long drive to, you, you do, you know, so I, I didn't think that that was strange at all. I thought that was actually normal. Um, you know, if he's coming back and he's coming back for Christmas break, you know, yeah. he's off, he's off. So I didn't think that that was bizarre at all. Um, you know, the other thing that I keep talking about, and, you know, again, like I can always hearken back on experience because there, there's so many things about this case and the Anthony Garcia case that are similar, other than the fact that, you know, all the victims were killed in one house at one time. You know, you've got two sets of homicides that happened five years apart, but, you know, very similar circumstances in terms of the knives being used. And, you know, but in Garcia, they didn't have any evidence in terms of forensics. You know, there was no DNA found at any of the crime scenes, which still just blows my mind, you know, because with, with knife fights, you know, and, and where people are killed with, with knives, especially if there's defensive wounds, you know, if, if you've got a victim that's fighting for their life, um, if they're fighting for their life, then, you know, they're, they're going to have the defensive wounds on their hands, but it's not, it's not easy to hit a moving target, you know? So, so essentially what that means is that you've got, if you're a right-handed person, you're, you're going to be trying to control the victim's movements to a certain extent by holding them with your other hand and you're wildly thrashing a knife, trying to kill somebody, you know, more often than not, they clip themselves you know, yeah. with the very knife that they're killing the person with. So that's why there's often the killer's DNA when it's a gun, uh, when it's a knife as opposed to a gun, like you're going to get DNA far more often in a, in knife killings than you will if there was a, a, a gun used in order to kill the victim. So, yeah, I don't know, man. It, it's like uh, that DNA evidence is, is something. Um, and I was going to say, you know, like kind of talk about that for a second too. Not only the, for me anyway, the, the DNA evidence, that's obviously a, a really big thing they found on the button of the sheath. Just the fact that they can identify this is, you know, probably a possible mistake on his part, or it could be that he meant to have this type of knife, uh, the, the K-Bar Marine. It's a very popular knife. It's probably one of the most popular and, and well-sold knives in the entire world. Yep. It's readily available almost anywhere you can go to and go on Amazon and, and find a dozen sailors that are uh, selling it right now. Uh, it's right now they run about, you know, 90 to a hundred dollars for this, this knife. It's sort of a mid range knife. It's not, uh, not one of these cheaply made uh, knives that you, you know, find from overseas, whatever like that, that are shipped in. It's really well made. And just like you were saying, the sheath itself, 
a lot of people don't know this, the sheaths are very, they're made for this knife. They even say, you know, the K-Bar Marine on the, the actual sheath itself, you can see this. So it's a very specific knife. It's, and if they find this knife in any of these places that, that he had traveled to, it's, it's, I mean, even more of a slam dunk, I think, because you've got a, a matching knife to the sheath that's there. You'll probably have some DNA evidence on there too that, that matches, I would imagine. But in general, yeah. it's the same type of knife that came with the sheath. It, it would be one thing if it was a, a lot of, uh, like I said, the Chinese companies, you know, make knives, real cheap ones in mass. They'll use the same sheath on different knives sometimes. Right. So with this one, it's very specific. It's a, a leather sheath. It's got, you know, the, the metal buttons on them. It, it's very specific. And, you know, I think it's very significant to this uh, as far as the style that it is. It's it's a military style knife with partially serrated edge. Uh, it's a I'm pretty sure it's a full tang knife, which means the the metal from the blade actually runs back through the handle. So it makes it stronger. It's a good knife to have, uh, you know, for, for something like this. And as far as I know, I don't own one myself. I've thought about getting one before, but I think they come pretty sharp from the factory. So he, he may not have had to do anything. I, I'm sure he didn't have to do much sharpening with that. You know, in the thing about that, that sheath, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I mean, the entire point of that is number one to keep the you know the blade uh, you know away from being able to injure people. But with that particular sheath, with the snap, it's supposed to be on your belt, correct? I yeah. mean, like it, like he was supposed to have looped that around his belt, and then that's what the snap is for. You snap the snap down, and it keeps it secure on the on your side. Um, seems like maybe. Maybe it came off during the struggle. Maybe he didn't have it on his belt, um, whatever the case may be. Yeah, it very could well be that he had it, uh, had the knife actually in a pocket. And then when he removed the knife from the sheath, the sheath came with it and just fell on the floor or something like that. Or fell, uh, was it on the floor or the bed? I, I think it was on the bed, wasn't it? I think it was on the bed. Yeah. And, it, you know, the interesting thing about where they found the sheath is it was on the third, uh, you know, on the third floor. So it yeah. was in the, the room that Kaylee and Maddie were in. So I don't know if that helps us piece together kind of like who was killed first, because if he's wearing, if he's wearing the sheath when he goes up there and it somehow becomes, you know, dislodged from his body and it comes unclipped, if he was wearing it, you know, it, like it, if he's like either way, to me, the fact that the sheath is up there indicates to me that that's who he killed first. Yeah, you know, I would like, think so just, too. Because like, there's no other explanation of how the sheath would be up there. Because if he's going in, and if, if like you said, if he just had it in his pocket, he goes in and he's killing, you know, Zana and Ethan on the second floor first, and, and say he didn't have it, you know, he wasn't wearing it on his belt, and he just pulls the knife out, then you know, then I theoretically, and he tries to stick it in his pocket, maybe he falls out of his pocket during the struggle, you know, you'd have the sheath down there. So like, you know, the fact that it's up there means that he had it pulled out of the sheath at that point, either it fell off of his body or out of his pocket. He didn't realize it. And then he goes down, commits those two murders, and then he's out the door, you know, because like, I think that the video has him back in his car by 420. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Kind of on that same note uh, with, with the, the sheath anyway. And yeah, it could have been any number of reasons. He could have had it on his belt. It could have come off there. He could have had it in a pocket. But at the same time, he could have just been carrying it up there to set it on the bed 
and forgot about it. And something I've made a note of on my show a number of times is that criminals have to be lucky and perfect every time. Police only have to do that one time. So that might have been his uh, bad piece of luck there. And for just seriously forgetting, and just like you said earlier on, he went back likely for this, this sheath that he realized that he forgot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this guy was no criminal mastermind. You know, it's like, like everybody's talking about, he was getting a PhD in criminology. This, uh, like this guy left like quite the broad, like quite the bread trail of, of clues. You know, it's, it's not just the sheath. I mean, the sheath is like the, the most damning, you know, piece of evidence because it's obviously got his DNA on it. And he has you know, no and, reason to be there. He's got no reason to be there. And, you know, but, but not only that, he, you know, he brings his phone. Theoretically, he turns it off because he's off grid for the 20 minutes while the killings are taking place. Then he's back on grid. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, get a burner. You know, if you're like, if you're a criminal master, the first thing you do is you never bring your personal cell phone. You go buy a cell phone with cash. That's a burner. And you, you buy, you know, a cell phone card with minutes on it. Yeah. And that's what you're using for, you know, you're not bringing your personal GPS locator device that we all have on our persons at all times. And like kind that, of that, on that same note, too, um, if, you know, going on what he could have done differently, I, I think from my end, anyway, think about it. I think that if he would have got a different car and, you know, it, the the DNA, obviously, that's one of the big things. If he wouldn't have forgot the, the sheath there. But the car, that's where the, what kind of led this this whole thing down that path is seeing that car leave at the, the time it did. And 100%. then from there, they, they rolled into the whole cell phone and, and getting the historical data on his, uh, the, the GPS on the, the cell phone, where it was at different times and kind of narrowing it back to him. And actually, one of the ways that I mentioned on the episode, and I know you talked about it on yours, is that... Um, they actually acquired his phone number from a previous stop that uh, happened, I believe it was back in August. Um, and on the body worn camera there from that officer, they got his phone number from it. Yep. So it's. Yeah, no, there, there's no question, man. I mean, the, the car, the car for them expedited it. You know, it's like they, they knew that they had the sheath and they knew that they had the DNA profile that was on the button. So they knew they had the DNA. The problem with DNA is that. If he's never been arrested, he's not in CODIS. You know, and CODIS is the database, the the DNA database that law enforcement uses. So, you know, typically, you know, anybody that has a felony arrest, they're in the they're in the database. Like the the database is not what people think it is in terms of being just a voluminous amount of DNA profiles on there. It's actually relatively meager. Um, it's growing exponentially. Um, like over the past like few years especially as DNA has become more prevalent in, you know, in trying cases and, you know, especially with the advent of ancestry and, you know, 23andMe and and you got private companies that are doing it and what law enforcement, like their databases are much larger than CODIS. Oh yeah. Because you have it. People are volunteering for it. Exactly. You know, and people have the options of being able to make their DNA available to CODIS in terms of people that are, are, you know, like wanting to be helpful. You know, because those gene, uh, you know, the genealogical DNA stuff that's going on is amazing, which is basically how they got to the point where they could say that there was a match, you know, because the DNA, which which is kind of something that's a little befuddling to me because they had the sheath, 
they figured out the car situation before December. You know, they, they knew about the car and they knew whose car it was in late November. You know, so, and then they released the photo on December 7th. They put the, like the bolo out and, you know, but at that point they, they knew, they knew whose car it was. So it like, that was, that was to smoke him out. Like we, we know this from, you know, the affidavit that they knew at that point, at the time that they put the bowl out, what they're saying publicly, oh, anybody that, you know, may know whose vehicle this is, or if you own this vehicle, we have some questions for you. You might have some information about this murder, you know, and that was done to see if this guy, the only reason it was done, they knew it was his car at that point. Like that, that was, was a not tactic. a question. Yeah. It was a, a complete tactic to see what this guy's response was going to be. You know, the, the question that, that just I keep asking myself is like, okay, they've known this guy was the guy since November. Why weren't they just creeping around his place and grabbing his trash when he threw something out? You know, it's like, it was strange to me because they waited all the way until he's back in Pennsylvania. And I think that they pulled the garbage from the family house on the 27th overnighted to the lab in Idaho and they got the results back on the 28th. Why aren't they just creeping around this guy's place waiting for him to bring some garbage out? You know what I mean? Because they, they were surveilling him 100%. They were watching this guy. Like, I, I just don't know why they didn't do that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, to, to me, that's going to be much to do about nothing because at this point, you know, when you're arrested for a felony, you have to give DNA. So they're, they're going to get the match that everybody's going to want. You know, they're not going to need to rely on that. You know, so in terms of like kind of shock value to see that they have the DNA, it, it was enough in terms of the affidavit to show that, you know, we're able to make, you know, a familial match. You know what I'm saying? Because it's, it's a, you know, like all of us share DNA from both our mothers and our fathers. By the time this gets to trial, they'll have the lab results and they'll be able to verify that that's his DNA. If I'm the defense attorney, you know, I'm trying to say that it was somebody else and that, you know, he, he had given him the sheath or somebody stole the sheath. They're going to come up with some bullshit, you know, some kind of story. Yeah, they'll try all they want to, but at the yeah, same time, I mean, they're, you know, by this point, though, they've probably collected, you know, I mean, granted, they've collected his direct DNA, but they probably actually had that there. And they they only listed the, the DNA from the father as in the affidavit. They didn't really have to um, with with his. I mean, it would probably have been better if they did, but every little piece, everything that they add on is just going to stack up. And that's actually kind of where I was going to roll into next is that just kind of the general overall thoughts on the case itself, like what it's, uh, what you think, where you think it's going to head to and being that you've, you know, obviously a defense attorney, how would you handle this case if, if you were his, his attorney? Well, the first thing that I looked up, uh, the minute that I saw that he was arrested and I saw the look in his eyes, um, in some of the photographs that I was seeing of him is I'm like, all right, I'm going, if I'm defense guy, I'm, I'm going mental defect. So I found out immediately that in 1982, that Idaho repealed the insanity defense. So that is not available to him. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I'm sure people are going to be pretty excited about that. What, what they did. Yeah. So they repealed it in 1982. You cannot use that as defense for any kind of, uh, criminal activities in Idaho anymore. Um, what, what you can do is you can attack, uh, what they call the mens rea component of the crime, which is the mental aspect of the crime. And the way that the Idaho Supreme Court kind of explained that was, so say for instance, you've got somebody who murders somebody, but that 
the person that they murdered, they believed in their mind that they thought that they were killing a wolf. Okay, they didn't believe that they were killing a person. And then they gave another example that somebody killed somebody, but they, they knew that they were killing a person, but they believed that they had to kill the person in order to stop that person from becoming a wolf. <laughs> you know, so they use these two weird wolf hypotheticals. Yeah, that's kind of but, weird. But, it, but it, it's weird, but it makes sense because what they're trying to say is that the first case, you have the defense of attacking the mens rea. You can bring his mental state in because he didn't have the mens rea to kill a person, which is required in the statute. Okay, so when you're trying a case, you have to prove, the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt each and every element of a case or of the statute. So for murder, you know, one of the, the elements that has to be proved is that a person was a, or that the victim was a, a person, a human. If this guy's mental state was, and they could prove it with competent evidence, was that he honestly believed that this person was actually a wolf, that he didn't really think that he was killing a human, he could bring that in as a, as a mental, kind of a mental defect defense, but he can't do insanity. So there isn't a mental defense angle. I, th th I don't, based on what I've seen from what this guy has done in terms of trying to cover his tracks. Yeah, um, it's not going to be I, there. It's not going to be there for him. So taking that out of it, so that that was my gut instinct initially. I'm like, I'm going mental mental defect. Find out that insanity is not there for him. So you know, and I'm I'm figuring the mens rea thing is not going to work for him either. You know, it, it's going to have to be picking apart every piece of evidence. It's like like when you have a case like that where the state has very very strong evidence. It, you're it, you're trying to. It's a death by a thousand paper cuts, where you're just trying to to pick apart every piece of evidence they have. Say that it was shoddy police work. Yeah, throw out the reasonable really, doubt in general. Yeah, I mean that that's what it's going to be. It's going to have to be a reasonable doubt thing. And, and um, one of the things too that I've that's kind of stood out to me is that it's still to this day, and I'm not even sure if, if the authorities have it either. There's been no motive at all listed for this because it seems that he had no connection with these people. He, you know, granted, I think there was some him driving around the, the area, maybe, I don't know if stalking is a good word to put it. I mean, I guess it probably is, but, um, but there's no actual connection between him and, and these people that were killed. What's the motive? There's, there's nothing listed there and, and they kind of need, need to establish that at least a little bit. I would imagine. Yeah, I, I see. That's the thing, man. Juries like to hear motives. You don't need it for a conviction, but oh, juries yeah. like to uh, juries like to or want to try to understand why, um, you know. So, in the state wants to be able to give them that. This guy, I'm looking at, like uh, this guy is either was an active serial killer, or he was a just starting serial killer. Oh, I think like that I, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, serial killers don't have motives that aren't related to themselves. You know, like serial killers don't kill people. Um, they're victims because there there is a connection with them. They they do the opposite. They kill people that they have zero connection with because, you know that that's how murder crimes get solved is when you have connections because that's what victimology is. They they use concentric circles starting with the people closest to the victim and they work their way out in terms of trying to clear people. You know, so what serial killers do is they pick people that have no connection to them whatsoever because it makes it extremely difficult for law enforcement to try to figure out who did this, 
you know? Yeah. So like, you know, so like, I, I don't think there's going to be a motive. I, to be honest with you, what I think this guy's motive is, and, and I'm just, I've flat out said it, um, in various, like, you know, online. And I think I may have said it on my episode. I can't remember, but, um, I, I think that his motive is he wanted to become infamous. He wanted the notoriety. He wanted to be known. You know, I, I, I firmly believe that I, I can, I can just tell you now, like this is like, I was huge on not speculating about anything relating to anybody else in terms of potential suspects. But when, when we get to the point where we've got a guy in custody and I have law enforcement at a press conference asking the public for any information that they may have about this guy, um, I've run into this thing on, on, uh, on the internet about this, uh, profile that was on Facebook. A guy named, uh, the profile's name was Papa Roger, who was in two or three Facebook groups online, uh, actively trolling all of these Facebook groups that were about the Idaho murders. Like the guy was an admin in one of the groups as Papa Rogers. And these, these questions that he was posing were almost identical to the questionnaire that, that he had posted on Reddit that he was allegedly, have you heard about that thing? No, actually I hadn't. Um, no, I, I actually do I recall somebody talking about a, a Reddit post, but I can't recall what it was. Yeah. He had posted in a Reddit group um, under the guise of, you know, it was for his studies, for his, uh, you know, he was going for his PhD. So I, I'm assuming it would have been for his thesis. But um, he apparently had created this this questionnaire that was all about kind of how to get away with murder. Like, you know, so mm. it was posing all these questions like, you know, how would you clean up the crime scene? You know, what would you do if the, you know, the weapon broke in the middle of the crime? You know, like all these questions that were incredibly off-putting. So this this Papa, Papa Roger profile in these groups. Actress Catherine Heigl, a passionate animal advocate who has saved over 16,000 dogs, says she's been seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. She believes there's a link between canine health and diet. After extensive research, she developed Superfood Complete, a dog food pack with over 30 wholesome ingredients, including superfoods beneficial for your furry friend. Superfood Complete isn't just about deliciousness, though dogs love the taste. It's about supporting overall well-being. In addition to providing a healthy option for your pet, Badlands Ranch, the maker of Superfood Complete, also supports the Jason DeBus Heigl Foundation, which helps rescue countless dogs and find them loving homes. Dogs across America are trying this food and loving it. Go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 today was it's insane dude like i i honestly believe that this guy was online after the killings like trolling these sites and just playing with people and, and like so the, the the biggest example is because all of the things that he's posing he just kept posing these weird questions that that normal people would be like what the fuck you know yeah. this guy does it. so he he gets into an a, an internet argument 
on the face on one of these Facebook groups, which are all deleted, by the way. So there's no use in anybody going on trying to find like, I think the feds pulled it all at this point. I think the feds are aware of this account. But uh, the biggest kind of like blurbs were was this this uh, internet fight with this other guy where the Papa Roger account says, he just comes flat out and says, and, and, and this is like on December 15th, long before he's arrested. He's like, oh, he's like, well, I, I think, you know, that we know that there was a knife used. I think that they found the sheath. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, and, before and so it's they, released he, everybody, absolutely. Th- yeah. This is fifth, this is two weeks before. He's like, I think that they found the sheath at the at the site. And, and so he gets in this like l- big debate with this guy about, you know, the sheath. And, you know, it, it, it's insane. It's insane. So like when you start digging into all the questions this guy is asking, you know, and he would just pose like queries. He's like, you know, like he asked that question. Well, if, if the weapon broke in the middle of murdering these people, what, you know, what would you do? You know, and, and that's and, actually another good piece of evidence too. If they go out and they do find this, they could find a knife that's broken. It is all smoking, smoking gun stuff. Yeah. man. It's like, like the, the sheath thing, like the timing of it, because the feds are all over that and they're going to be able to use IP addresses yeah. to pinpoint exactly who it was. It's like the guy, which just tells me exactly who this guy is. And and that's why I'm saying like, like me believing that that was actually him on their trolling. Cause you know, that, that, you know, old timey serial killers, they they'd clip their, their newspaper clippings. Now, instead of doing that, you go on the internet. And now you can interact with the people that are talking about the crimes that you committed. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not a a giant mystery. Now this guy being so stupid that, you know, he's going to use devices to access Facebook and things like that, where they're going to find it. You know, I mean, that is a hundred percent going to (laughs) be, if they can confirm it, like my guts telling me everything about that is, is that guy, which tells us everything that we need to know about that guy, which is that his motive for this was to gain notoriety from his crimes he wants to be like he's got that sick twisted mind that that he wants to be a you know a ted bundy a john gacy like any of these creeps that everyone seems to always want to talk about and he was doing everything he can to try to hide it so he could probably do more of them especially with the if he was this guy doing all these internet posts that just lends further it's like to to push the fear to push the the worry, especially like in a small town like that. I mean, absolutely it's, it's horrible, horrible stuff on that. Oh man. He, he's like this, this guy's the worst. Like, you know, he like, I, I think he's just a stone cold, you know, sociopath, like bottom line. I mean, you could tell, like, you could just see it. Like the first time I met you, you have kind eyes. I could tell you're just a good guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Seriously. Like I, I look at your face and, you know, I can see your soul through your eyes. I could tell you're just a big teddy bear. You know what I mean? I can, I can see it in your eyes. No, like this I, I guy, it's I, con- I consider myself a, like an, maybe a little bit of an asshole teddy bear. I mean, I've got that little <laughs> edge to me, you know? Well, I mean, all of us are that a little bit, you know what yeah. I mean? But, you know, deep down though, you know, you may have a hard outer shell, but you've got a, like a soft inner core, you know, but like this guy, you look, he's black slate dude you know you, you look at him you can just see there's nothing there it's like that 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 empathy like the lack of empathy that all these guys like all of them have you can see it it's it's right there for you you know like you don't need to be a trained psychologist to look at this guy and, and realize that you know he, he's he's not 
good people, you know? So I, I really, you know, obviously as a criminal defense attorney, um, you know, we've got to wait, make sure the evidence is vetted. But, you know, from what I'm looking at, um, his public defender, and it looks like he, I, I recently saw that he filed, uh, I think uh, as of today that he filed a, uh, petition for indigent, uh, that he's indigent and he was appointed the public defender officially. So it doesn't look like he's hiring some big, you know, big hotshot lawyer. Oh, I've, I've got a feeling they'll, they'll come out of the woodwork, you know, work like willing to work pro bono for him just to get their name out there too, possibly. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's like the thing with Garcia's case is like, he always said he was innocent. And, yeah. you know, and I, I like when I started looking at the evidence, I, I believed him. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a, and I, like, not to say that if he was guilty that I wouldn't have defended him. I mean, I have a job to do, but you know, like this type of case, when you have it, when you drop an affidavit like that, <sighs> you know, like lawyers aren't signing up to get their ass whipped. Oh no. You know what I'm no. saying? Like, like lawyers, like you don't gain a bunch of business when you go in and get your ass whipped, even if it's a high profile case. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know, man. I, I think he might be stuck with the PD on this one. It, like, it could it, be. It could be. Yeah. It's like, like, cause I, I know what you're saying. Like, you know, like on high, like Richard Allen's case, I would have thrown my hat in the ring on that. You know, honestly, because like, if that's the evidence they have in like when, again, I look at a picture of Richard Allen and, you know, they're always trying to use like one of his BDI pictures, you know, <laughs> you know, but I could tell he's, he just doesn't look like, that blank slate there's just that look when you look at these guys that like they have that look that it's hard to kind of put your finger on what it is but you can just see they're soulless you know and like this guy's just got that look and then when you compound it with everything that we know um factually because you know the 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 car data in terms of where he was traveling is is ironclad the phone data is ironclad yeah i mean they can attack the tower stuff but you know, the tower, tower information has gotten much, much better than it yeah, used to be. Yeah, that's something we I mean, use with, with Novel One literally every single day, multiple times. I mean, using the, and actually now there, there are more than one system that we use from that. It's like where I work at, we've got the kind of national data, which, which is a phase two, which does a triangulation between three different cell phone towers. Yeah. And, um, you know, now we have uh, another program we use that takes a little bit further. It takes a little, a little bit more of the data from it. And between the two, you know, some of the, there's minor variations, but I mean, the differences, man, it's, it's like feet. It's seriously just feet. <laughs> it is, dude. It's like night and day, like back, back in Garcia's time, you know, even in 16, like the triangulations was like a, a couple few miles. And like you said, like now it's like feet, you know, yeah. they can pinpoint, they can pinpoint you, you know? So yeah, I don't like it. It's whoever's going to defend that guy is going to have one hell of a tough job to <laughs> I mean, he, he like it, they, they, it looks like a very, very strong case against him at this point, and it's only going to get stronger. I can't see it getting any weaker. You know, the, the question is, is he going to, you know, because it is a death penalty state and the way that the state operates is that they can offer him as a carrot to, you know, that he takes, you know, he takes life you know, four counts of life and like he does, you know, life without the possibility of parole. He pleads out, you know, in exchange for them not killing him. And, you know, I mean, they're going to go to the families with that, you know, the, the prosecutor will, and they'll say, well, what's your position on this? 
you know, do you want, you want us to go to trade? Cause like, there's no other, there's no other carrot to offer him other than to take the death penalty off the table. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. So, and they're always going to check with the, the victim's families to say, well, you know, what's your preference? You know, do you want to go through the horrors of reliving it through a trial, you know, in order to get to the death penalty or, you know, is your preference to just let us offer him that, uh, you know, in lieu of us going to trial and having you guys relive all that. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the families and, and what their wishes are will play a, like a large part in that. Um, you know, I mean, immediately the state said they're going for the death penalty on it, which you knew that they would say. So, but that doesn't mean that he won't plead out. Um, you know, and it, it just, it's one of those things where I loved, loved, loved today. Um, the judge just issued an order. They're not going to televise it which yeah. thrilled, which thrilled me, you know, because like that, that this guy wanted that thing to be televised. Like he, he just, I, he just wants the notoriety. He wants the fame from it. He wants to be one of those guys. He wants to be serial killer. He wants to be one of those, you know, people that's mentioned with all the other creeps, you know, like that's just his thing. I, I think that's how he gets his sexual gratification. You know, it's like they said there was no sexual, you know, gratification that was evident in terms of evidence he didn't need to like his thrill was the kill you know i mean that that was that was what was what gave him the pleasure you know like i have no doubt about it so um yeah i mean i guess we'll see how it plays out i think we're gonna have long stretches of silence on this case because that that gag order is pretty heavy you know pretty heavy duty yeah that's, like that, that's that, that, something and granted just like you were saying it's better for for something like this for him not to get the satisfaction from it from having the the huge notoriety he's even he's already got it it's it's all over the news to a degree right. but it's it's very small pieces you've got his exactly. mugshot photo and you know a couple other photos and that's that's really about it they're not going to have any real huge things like this from the from the trial itself um exactly and, and he's not going to be on tv for you know three weeks yeah looking at it looking at his stupid face you know what i yeah. mean it's yeah. like you know saying his name over and over and again it's not going to be the most watched thing which it would be you know if, if the thing was televised everybody on the planet would be watching or at least everybody in the u.s and then you know, you know mean, on the flip side of it too though you've got people i mean granted like us and the people who you know our listeners who want to find out more about this you know for multiple reasons you you want to you know, analyze this person. You want to know what this person is doing, what's going on in their head, why they did this, and how, you know, as, as far as a law enforcement perspective, how we can prevent something like this from happening again or nailing down someone like this even quicker. Right. So there's, um, you know, th that info, we'd like it to be out there. Um, just me and you are the same way. We want to know everything about this. We want to get deep into it. Yeah. But there's the aspect of, him getting satisfaction from this people are you know unfortunately like us we're making shows about this and uh, you know I'm, I'm hoping that he never ever gets to listen to any of this or you know sees any type of news articles or anything about him i'm hoping well, that happens. look if he's yeah me too man i mean if he's listening to my shit he's never gonna hear his name yeah <laughs> like that like I'm, I'm huge on that like i'm like on this huge twitter campaign like every, everything that i'm putting out i'm asking people do not say this fucking guy's name yeah do not give him that like that is what he wants that i'm, I'm serious i'm dead serious i i believe that was his motive it was either the sexual gratification from the thrill kill or a combination of that and the fact that he just wants to gain fame from this he wants to be that guy you know like he he would have 
I have no doubt if this is the first that he did, and I'm not so sure that it is, you know, but he was so sloppy with this one. I can't imagine that he wouldn't have gotten nabbed on a, on a different one that he may have done either in Pennsylvania or, you know, Washington, you know, more likely it would be why he's 28. You know, I mean, Gacy started when he was in his early twenties, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like this is just a, a mentality, man. It's like, it's something these guys are born with, you know, I think there's, I think there's an aspect of it's nature and nurture. You know, I think that it's something that they're born with. And I think that it gets, you know, exacerbated if they go through certain things, you know, trauma when they're at home. I mean, I don't know jack shit about this guy's family, but just the two minutes that I saw of that video with his father in the car, the guy looked like just a normal kind of middle of Pen- you know, middle of Pennsylvania guy. Like a blue collar dude, you know yeah, what I mean? Regular Did guy. I mean, in, in yeah. kind of the same way. I, I don't know anything about him, and I'm sure that they'll they'll probably have a lot of stuff that does come out. But man, it's it, you, you really have to think. Just like you were saying, you, you think some people are just born with this. It's just yeah. There's no other explanation to it. If if he lived in a a nice normal household, there's no abuse. There's no sexual abuse there's no any of that stuff he wasn't bullied right. in school just all that if he if all that comes out there's no other explanation than he was just he's born broken. with it or yeah. something happened in his brain to make him do this he's broken man like yeah. he just he's missing that that element you know that that and it, it like it always kind of intertwines back to empathy for me it's like you know when i was going through the you know the creeps case which is what i referred to gacy as like you know i didn't like i I, I did a thing on a serial killer because my dad defended the guy and I had these tapes, not because I'm infatuated with serial killers. You know what I mean? So like even in my own podcast, I think I probably referred to him by name like five times, you know, like I, I called him the creep, you know, it was like, I, I didn't want to give him, even though he was long dead, like, I don't want to keep perpetuating his name. You know, it's like, like our country just has this weird fascination with these guys and uh oh man the world i mean it's yeah it's true man i like i I just i don't get it it's so weird you know one good thing is we've got now is that uh as far as we know it seems as though there are none of these active serial killers that are that are like these you know like the dahmers and gacy stuff like that it seems that with the advent of technology and where we're at now it's damn near impossible for that to happen now now it is you know i'm sure that they're there are ways of doing it, but no one's hit it yet as far as we know. I mean, it's tough. Like Darren and I had that exact conversation in like our epilogue after the Gacy thing. We're like, all right, fast forward to 2021. How many do you think you can get away with at this point? And Darren's like, Darren was at a much higher number than I was. I was like two. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, dude, it's like, kids are off the, you know, kids are off. Like as soon as a kid goes missing, you get the, you know, the Amber alerts are out there. Um, you know, it's, just, it's a, it's a whole different, it's a whole different thing. You know, he's like, well, Darren was like, well, you know, he'll just, he'll go for like homeless people, which seems to me like the only serial killers that would successfully kill multiple people over an extended period of time are the, you know, the, the fringe people that are just underserved by every, every aspect of, you know, society, you know, so yeah. you're talking like homeless guy, you know, I mean, somebody's no not going to be looked into that heavily, right? No, no one's going to give a shit, you know, which is horrible and sad, you know, but it's real. And, you know, so if you got a guy who's out there just killing, 
um, you know, homeless people or sex workers that, you know, are out there with, without any kind of real family. And, you know, cause it's like you figure it's gotta be somebody that's off the grid. Anybody that's on the grid, like you said, man, the tech is just too heavy duty. You know, it, like all of us are walking around with GPS transponders in our pocket. It's like everything we do is tracked with, you know, between surveillance, GPS on our phones, our computers, like digitally, we are so on the grid. There's just no hiding. There is no hiding in plain sight anymore. That does not exist yeah. in any capacity, you know? And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, I mean, they, they say that they think there's like 21 to 22 active serial killers out there. Um, you know, I posted something on our socials or my, my daughter who's handling my socials on Instagram, she posted something on like a week ago, but you know, they keep finding like 20 to, you know, between 20 and 30 year old white males in Lake Michigan and Chicago. And there's been like six of them like over the last two years. So they're, you know, and they're like, I mean, cause you know, the one thing, like if we go back to earlier in our conversation in terms of the victimology and like the, like the kind of that motive thing, that's what allows serial killers to continue to operate. You know, it's just that there is no connection. You, there is no, no, no matter how far out you go, just the fact that it's completely random with no connection to that person, it makes it really, really hard for law enforcement, you know, so that's when you're relying on the fact that, you know, we've got closed circuit TVs everywhere in surveillance, you know, I don't know what percentage of our country has ring, you know, or nests or rings or whatever the, the cameras are that we all have at our well, doorbells. Dude, like with the, with this and just hearing uh, what I do at work, somebody will call in and say, oh, my, my shed was broken into behind my house and I've got the, the suspect on video. It's every <laughs> single day. So I, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I, I, I can't say that there's like a, I don't know if I'd say a substantial percentage of like, you know, I can't say like half the homes have a ring camera or something like that. But I mean, it's, it's a good amount. I, it, I'd say, it's a lot. you know, five to 10% at least now, some sort of camera well, like that. I mean, look at, look at Moscow, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about Idaho, which is pretty remote. You know, I mean, I wouldn't call that like a massive town and, and just yeah, 25, think about 25,000 people. Yeah. 25,000 people, you know, in between Pullman, the 10 miles between Pullman and, and Moscow, how many times does they catch this guy in surveillance? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's everywhere. Like to me, the only way that, that there could be any kind of like serial killer is a dude that's creeping on national parks. You know, you, you need to have a big expansive area where there is very limited technology. It's the only place that it'll work. You know, if you're a serial killer, it's like, it's, it's kind of like the, the Israel keys thing. You know, that was always his kind of his deal. Like if I was a serial killer, I'd go to Alaska, <laughs> you know, it's like the last of the wild frontier out there. You know, I mean, you just have huge swaths, you know, swaths of land that are, you know, like wilderness you know, yeah it's, i mean it's you like do that but at the same time you would have to have that kind of wilderness survival type aspect too because you go up there and the the state itself will kill you that shit's yeah. real yeah <laughs> right. i mean as much as you might want like have the um oh there was a a movie that uh, and, a, and it actually came from a book and uh the name escapes me right now it's about a a guy who had this 
lifelong notion that he was going to go to Alaska and just live off the land. And, you know, he had very little knowledge of the state survival skills, anything like that. And he went up there, you know, against everyone's advice and he died. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. Unless you really know how to live in those places like that, you can't survive. I mean, the, the cold will get you an animal will get you. You'll be walking and sprain an ankle and you're 10 miles away from the nearest. You're done at all. You're, you're gone. You're done. You are done. It's like, I, I don't know if you ever watched that, that, uh, that series, the alone series where they were dropping people off. Oh yeah. Like they, they, it was days, actually great. These people are lasting days. Dude, yeah, I mean, some, some of them, and these are like, skilled the, people. The, the, these are skilled people. These are like survival experts. And I think the longest one went like a hundred days. You know, and and that was like, like unbelievable that they made it hundred days. Yeah, you know, and the the other, I'm talking about like that. Every one of them was starving. Like none of them could like get enough game or fish in order to survive. You know, we we're talking like these people are like like you know like thrilled that they're you know like catching a like a squirrel in a snare. You know, like starving to death. But yeah, no, nah, man, nah, I, I'm with you. No, like the way that you, you'd have to live in the area. You yeah, have to the, live. the people who are, you know, who, uh, who are actually skilled, like really actually skilled at doing that are actually doing it right now. You know, they're, right. they're out there. I mean, there are people that have been, uh, you know, out in the woods of Alaska, Canada, you know, different far reaches of, you know, Montana, places like that. They've been out in the middle of no, nowhere for decades and they know how to do it. They're not coming off. They're not coming back on the grid to do anything except for, they might roll down to a grocery store once a year or, right. you know, go someplace to get gas for their snowmobile or something. I mean, it's, it's rare that they would ever pop themselves out back into public. So exactly. they're, they're already doing this. And so, I mean, yeah, theoretically, one of those could turn into a serial killer or something like that. But it, the chances of it, I mean, it's slim to none. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's like, like keys, like have you, have you dug into Israel keys at all? I know like, a little bit about it, but really not, I'm sure not nearly as much as you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know much until I listen to Josh Hallmark's podcast, you know, yeah. his true crime bullshit. Like that he focuses on, on keys and, you know, cause like I, I became interested when I listened to like Josh, like the first episode, cause I had never heard of the guy. I don't think anybody really did. I mean, barely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that was because keys was the antithesis of your typical serial killer. Like his deal in order to like coax the FBI into expediting his execution was he's like, look, I will give you information on the crimes that I've committed, but I want two promises from you. One is that while I am alive, that you do not leak this information to any news agencies. I do not want anybody to know who I was, what I was doing. I don't want, you know, I have a daughter because he had a daughter. He's like, I don't want this for her. It's like, I, I don't like, like he, he was the opposite of what most, most of these guys are, you know? So, you know, so that was part of the deal. And so they, they got him to agree, which was tough, you know, cause like there were a lot of different agencies all over the country looking for this guy, you know, even internationally. Cause he was in Belize, he, you know, this, this guy, cause like he was always the guy that they say was probably the most meticulous serial killer in terms of covering his tracks until he wasn't until he got really sloppy. Um, and then when I'm, I'm kind of looking at like Josh has picked apart that guy's like his files in terms of like building a timeline. Um, 
I mean, he had his phone with him all the time. <laughs> yeah. you know, like Josh is able to get, like pinpoint exactly where this fucking guy was like all the time, you know? So like Josh is like, okay, well, we're going to go on NamUs and we're going to look at the NamUs 45 and we're going to see like which people were, went missing around the times that I've been able to pinpoint that Israel Keys was in the air. You know what I mean? So it's like as genius as they were saying that guy was, he wasn't, you know? I mean, he's still, it's like anybody, any serial killer that walks around with a cell phone is an idiot. It's that simple. Like, you're not getting away with shit if you have a cell phone. Let's get a burner. Go to an old flip phone. Like, that's it. That's the only way you could do it. Flip phone. Yeah, and people are, you know, now they're so used to having the technology with them, they're they're not going to want to do anything like that. Uh, I mean, dude, it's, it's you can't. phone crack. It's crack, dude. We're all addicted to those things. It's like, I, I wish they'd go away, honestly. It's like, not just for me, for my kids. It's like, it's like the convenience of them are amazing, but dude, like, you know, walking through a restaurant and like 80% of the people are looking at their phone. It's, it's gotten out of control. We need to reel it in. We'll, uh, I guess close this bit of it out. Thanks again for coming on and listen to defense diaries. Listen to music city. Nine one one. we'll, we'll do this again and, um, keep a good close following of this case here. Absolutely. And all my listeners definitely, definitely listen to music city. Nine one one, and you're welcome in advance. So there you have it. A very long discussion about the Idaho murders. Just like everyone else, we're hoping to learn more about this, but it's looking like it could be a while before that happens. I always check back for updates on this and new episodes. And if you're wanting even more from this, I've uploaded an extended cut of this onto Patreon, which is about 25 minutes worth of extra chat, a lot of which is what we call in the South just bullshitting. Us chatting about a bunch of nonsense and conspiracies and such. Not related to the case, but definitely entertaining. If you want to hear that and more, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash musiccity901 for that and ad-free episodes. All right, guys. We'll see y'all. See you later. See you later.